Welcome back to the Relationship Road Trip, navigating the twists and the turns of all the important relationships in your life. I am Ben Azevedo, your backseat driver. I'm Dr. Don Fernando Azevedo, clinical psychologist, executive coach, and voiceover artist, your navigator. And I'm Kim Azevedo, licensed marriage and family therapist, expressive arts therapist, your mechanic. I am Blaze Harris, licensed clinical mental health counsel associate, and one of many dope black therapists. Hop back behind that wheel driver. Let's go for a ride. Today's quote is by B.B. Moore Campbell. People of color, particularly African-Americans, feel the stigma more keenly. In a race-conscious society, some don't want to be perceived as having yet another deficit. Last time, Blaise joined us for a conversation about men and mental health. We're delighted to welcome him back for a second episode to look into the stigma around mental health in different cultures. Welcome back, Blaise. Thanks for having me. I'm so, so glad to be here again. All right. So first, let's break down what demographics are presented in statistics for mental illnesses. Yeah, me as your mechanic presenting all of the statistics. So again, we're looking at that research done by NAMI in 2019. There's a pretty even mix across demographics of adults who experience mental illness, which we talked last week about men and Dwayne The Rock Johnson's quote of depression doesn't discriminate. And that's true. Mental illness doesn't discriminate across race. I think what's interesting in the results from that particular study is that 50% of the people who were able to seek treatment were white. And the number of people or the demographic that sought treatment the least was 23% and it's Asian culture. And they were not more specific than Asian culture. So can't tell you anything about Pacific Islander versus all of the other different subcultures there. So I think that was the most interesting thing to me. Do any of these statistics look interesting to the rest of the people on this podcast? If we're talking about intersectionality, it's fascinating to me that the mixed and multiracial category is the highest category or group seeking mental health care at 32%. And you wonder about that. That every intersection that you have of things that are not what's accepted by society increases the stress and then increases the mental illness that goes with that. Just bearing on your back all of these different definitions and every one of the, the interactions that you have with other people that don't actually perceive who you are. They're looking for which label they're going to tag you with. That's true. That's got to be stressful. That jumped out to me as well, because so many people are trying to figure out their own identity. Who do I relate to? What group am I supposed to be a part of? Am I less this and more this? Who's going to accept me more? And then you got the whole one eighth percent, bro. Mm -hmm. You got to drop a black in you black, Mm -hmm. you know, so and and that's the thing. And not always accepted by the black community. Exactly. Exactly. So, and and that's the thing is just like, it's so many, it's so many different factors that can go into that and how people want to be accepted. People want to be accepted regardless of what their background is and who they are. So am I going to be accepted by this group and not this group? Or am I going to be accepted with open arms everywhere? Mm-hmm. 
This actually reminds me, there was a TV show or a movie I was watching. I can't remember which it was, but there was a young woman talking about all of the different categories that she fits into. And she wrote a beautiful poem called, Which Box Do I Fit In? Or Which Box Do I Pack? Because she was also in foster care. And she talks Uh about being Black, being Hispanic, being white, because that was the three cultures that she experienced. And when I look at these spreadsheets of what do I fill out? And yeah, when you experience multiracial identity, you get lost in what am I? Who am I? How do I fit into this? And what category do I put myself in? So, you know, what's, what's really cool this this thinking about this whole thing, my children are multiracial. And so they, but we, they learn at an early age. Okay. They know dad's black, mom's white. They hang out with both sides of the family. It's they, they're welcome everywhere that they go. And it's the same thing when they go out, they hug any child. They give high fives to everywhere that they go. They do all of this stuff. They don't care. To them, it's just that's just another kid that wants to play and do all these things. And that's what that's one of the things that, although their mom and I aren't together anymore, that's one of the things that both of us have taught them. Be good people. Be welcoming. Be be who you are. You're going to be unique. But the reality of me that I'm that I'm that I'm worried about a little bit later on is just like, okay. The world is a really crappy place sometimes. And as awesome as you all are, as awesome and friendly and happy and helpful, there are some people who aren't going to like you just because of the way that you look. And I have to have a conversation with my son that a lot of people don't have to have with theirs. Mm -hmm. I have to teach him how to speak properly. I have to teach him how to not look intimidating. I have to teach him how to for lack of better words, shrink himself, make himself smaller so he won't be seen as a threat. And that's not fair. And it upsets me. And I wish I didn't have to do that. But the reality is I have to because those things aren't going to go anywhere. They're not going anywhere anytime soon. I I am encouraged by some of the change, but I'm also disheartened that a lot of stuff has been enhanced that he's going to have to deal with. Well, and it's important to, and Blaise, I know you do this, advocate that if he is experiencing confusion or sadness or depression around this struggle of how do I fit in and the fact that because I look a certain way, I have to make myself smaller to reach out for help, right? Because we're talking about mental illness and this multiracial identity and that it leads to more struggles around this. And so... Making sure that that language is up. And I know you do because you're Mm. an awesome dad. (laughs) So, but I think that's important for listeners to take away as well is this is something that a lot of people and a lot of parents don't think about when they're raising their kids of, Mm -hmm. you know, some have to shrink themselves. They have to be smaller than who they are in order to stay safe. And the other thing in your story there is that children are far more blind to group yes. stuff and they yes. are much more attuned to who the person is. You know, this is my friend, Bobby, or my friend, yep. Sue, or my friend, Kendra, or my friend, <laughs> what are you laughing at, Kim? Just Kim's laughing at me again. Bobby and Sue. <laughs> 
They were just the most boring names I could think of, and I I dig it. I that was your chance to to bust out some you know Brazilian yeah. names. I was I was hoping for it too. I'm not gonna lie. Uh, <laughs> this is my friend Cleudon. Cleudon, Missinha. How about go. that? Much you better. Those? Yes. Maria yeah, de Luz. There we go. All right. I got so pick I don't actually know if that was just a microaggression or what just happened there. <laughs> can you be microaggressed by your kids? Yes. I don't know. Yes, you can. Yeah, you can. <laughs> yeah but I thought I thought we were just. I just okay. no, I just we liked fun that we were, we're talking about the majority culture and the intersection of all these different cultures, and it's like this is my friend Bobby, and this is my friend Sue. I got to Kendra. We did get to Kendra eventually. You did. You did get to Kendra. You had a dramatic pause though yeah. while you thought about well, it. Well, I was watching. But I'll cut. I'll cut it out. I'll cut. I it was out. watching facial expressions, going, "Oh, I'm in the wrong place. What's going on?" <laughs> oh man! You remember, I went to this, um, I went to school in the '60s and '70s, where oh, yeah. I was neither black nor white. I was a Latino, and yep. there weren't many of us. <laughs> yep. Yeah. The only time Papa has a Latin accent is when he says Latino. <laughs> no, that's not true. I said I said Don Pedro, and I also said Nisinha, and that's quite that's in Portuguese. Vou falar agora em português, não é? Abacaxi. I'm not. <laughs> it means pineapple. Listeners, Kim, Kim just yes, she just responded pineapple. I know. I'm not dunking on pop anymore. I just wanted to get into the into those. You know, it, talking about Kim earlier, you're talking about checking boxes, and the one that always gets me is like when you're filling out any of the medical form or whatever, and it's like Hispanic, let's you know. And I'm like, do I? Don't I? I usually I check it, and I always feel weird about it. And I'm always questioning. Like, I mean, I've got Brazilian heritage, like that is South America. That's Hispanic. Let's you know, like it's it's there. But I, it always makes me question, like, do I really have a, I don't know, a claim to that? That's not even the right language I want to use. But And because the culture has more to do with the culture that you grew up in. You didn't grow up in a Brazilian culture. I grew up in a Brazilian right. culture. I'm 50%. You're 25%. But here we get right. into this really, really crazy political stance mm. of how much needs to be in you for you to be categorized there. So if my great, great grandfather, great, great, great grandfather was an indigenous person in Brazil, am I a part indigenous person in Brazil? And I don't know the answer to that. You know, you get the, the things from the, the DNA things and they show you all the different places you come from and you find some crazy stuff in there. You know, I'm from Serbia. That's not really true, <laughs> but somewhere way right. back in the back, yeah. that was true. It's, it's just yeah. interesting. How do we, why do we need these categories? I just love that. I am always categorized into speaking Spanish because my last name is Azevedo. Mm -hmm. That's true. Mm -hmm. um, Even though Brazil is the biggest country in South I America. know, right? Well, and I, I always find it interesting, Ben, you and I being siblings and that you struggle with checking that box so much because for me, it's like, yeah, that's my... I feel that. And Papa, you're saying like, we weren't raised in a Brazilian culture and like to an extent, yeah, that's true. And also I look at the way you raised us and the household we grew up in. And I recognize it's very different than a lot of my American friends. 
and the extended family. You know, I all the all the family gatherings on your side were and are very different than the family <laughs> gatherings on Mama's side. Oh, wow. like, when I tell people about, you know, going to Kelly's house for this little impromptu family reunion and it's like loud and there's all this and it's very much like more culturally in line with that than, you know, yeah. Mama's parents. It's, just different. <laughs> you know, it's different. So, so maybe so. you're just experiencing my guilt that I didn't teach you Portuguese. <laughs> Well, we all feel that. I feel guilty for not learning it. Abakashi. Um, Desha. Desha means leave it alone. Nah, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Let's go with that. So, but, you know, what's really what's really interesting to me is how, you know, just talk, just hearing you all talk about, you know, your culture and what it's like. You know, I'm, 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 Port- I'm Portuguese. And doing all these things, I was that pretty decent. You know, I was trying to work on my accent with it. Um, but, but you think about it. I just have African-American. He's like, none mm-hmm. of that stuff is like, okay, where am I from? Congo, you know, mm. Cameroon, Ghana, where, what is this? Like the whole identity has just like been like erased. You know, you have people, you know, they're happy to be German, Irish, Italian, you know, Brazilian, all of these things. is just like, oh, African, this big old continent. <laughs> it's just like no, like no country, no, you know what I mean? And that's the thing is just like that identity is just, that's, it's gone. So yeah. what, you know, I'm I'm running out of the right words. It's like, but it's, it seems like, yes, we have a culture, but our identity is like has been like lost. You know, just trying to figure out. Mm. You know, why is it like that? Why is it okay for you to be, you know, Irish and, and German and 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 you know all these other things? All we have is black. Mm-hmm. All we have is black. So. Why is that an issue for us to say, you know, hey, we matter. We're just as important as you are. We don't have we don't have an identity like you do. They just put it. We're just in this one little box. But our box is dope. As, I don't know what I was almost almost got. <laughs> I caught <laughs> so, you know, our box, you know, but our box is really dope. You know, and like everybody wants to be a part of this box. So, but yeah, I digress. I, I don't think you digress. I think that's an important piece, particularly for black Americans struggling with how do I fit in? Where do I fit in? That's that's important because belonging is a key thing human beings need from our birth on. We're looking for the same level of understanding we had as in the womb. So when you're in the womb, everything is provided for you instantly. You're always comfortable. Life is great. The mother will sacrifice her body to make sure the fetus and then infant are taken care of. You split from that and nobody knows what you need anymore and you don't have any language. So you just cry out and people have to Mm -hmm. guess. And for the rest of our lives, we are looking for someone to see us, someone to hear us, someone to recognize our individuality in the world and care about that. And that's what we really need more of everywhere. Meet people. Don't meet groups. So we went everywhere with that. Question two. (laughs) We had it was good good, though. It was good. I'll pull us back towards more specifically, I guess, mental health. What are some of the barriers to seeking help? Yeah, it's a pretty big question. That's kind of a stack Um, question. I think you know, and we touched on this in the last episode. 
First of all, the majority of therapists are women. So 70.4% of practicing therapists are women. And the most common race and ethnicity among the therapists is white. It makes up 77% of all therapists. And if you look at that in comparison, 10.4% of therapists are Asian, 6.9% Hispanic or Latino, and actually the majority of therapists are apparently located in New York and Philadelphia, which I guess makes sense because concentration of population. I mean, New York makes perfect sense. Philadelphia seems like an odd second. Yeah. I would have guessed somewhere in California, but according to this particular study, that's what they found. So if we're looking at cultural experiences, you're going to be talking to most likely a white woman. And you may or may not feel heard and seen by that person like Don was talking about. Mm -hmm. So that's a big barrier right there. And and that's one of the reasons they try and train us to see the individual and try to get past all of the other labels that might be on them. Though that's a newer, newer thing. I, I was trained that way. 30, 36 years ago, whatever it was when I started training, that was an important element. Okay. And how long has the world of therapy been around? Since about only like twice that long. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say like maybe sixty years. Yeah. So, <laughs> so only even though Freud started out in the early nineteen uh, hundreds, late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, and it grew from there. That the true practice of mental health didn't really kick in until post World War Two. Okay, well, and I'm just thinking back of and as the female on this particular podcast, you know, the concept of the hysterical woman and how women were treated in that regard. And then that played into the cultural aspects of it and, you know, the access of care in general, but how behaviors and experiences were perceived by others. But Don, you're right. There is cultural competency training and you're required in most well, I guess in all yeah. different licenses now to be able to go through that. One of my certifications that I never speak out loud because it's so long is systemic multicultural diversity. And, you know, I pushed to go through these classes and learn about the different types of cultures, different ways people approach their lives and how do you sit with them and how do you join them rather than push them away or try to encourage them to fit a different right. category than right. what they are. Right. And, but that's the thing, though. You push for that. How many people are actually going to try to go out and do that stuff on their own? And that's going to be the issue. It's like how many people are going to be comfortable just saying where they are, dealing with a certain type of client, whether it be, you know, they could just be focusing on just depression and, and, and anxiety or PTSD or whatever and just stay in that thing. What are you going to do when you have somebody else who comes in who has these same different experiences, but not from the things in the, that the way that you typically do? Yeah. Right? So let's say, you know, yeah. take for instance, how with the, uh, the Stop Asian Hate, you know, recently. Right. So mm-hmm. when people deal with PTSD, you know, people have this idea what PTSD is. Oh, you got to go to war or you got to go through all these different types of things and all this stuff. Don't realize that PTSD can come from being in an abusive relationship seeing people killed not like not like you know not as extreme as 9-11 but seeing shootings and stuff like that just go around with people you know it's just like with everything that was going on with stop asia hate everything that was going on they literally went through and they saw people like that being killed on a regular basis think about black people 
going to, you know, being killed on a regular basis. And just like, not just that, you mean go to the school shootings, you know, the it, this, oh, yeah. the school shootings and just, uh, I'm sorry, I'm trying not to get riled up when it comes to these things. It's just like people don't realize the toll that that takes on people. When you see people like you getting killed on a regular basis every day on the news, that's what you see. You see that. But we're supposed to, oh, just do what you're supposed to do. No, you do what you're supposed to do. The same stuff happens. But I'm supposed to be okay with it right? because you don't understand why we're upset. The thing about it is, is like when I'm able to tell the difference when people are upset and why people are upset. And I'm not going to tell you not to be upset for the way that you're feeling. I can empathize. Do I know everything that you're feeling? No. But I can sit there with you and be present with you. So many people don't have that capability. So many people don't have that. They don't have the patience to work with all or desire to know why. And that's the issue. That's why people, that's why you see people of color not going to therapists because they think that the therapist that they go see does not get what they're trying to talk about. How are you going to relate Mm -hmm. to seeing black people killed every day? How are you going to relate to seeing Asian people killed every day? Well, white people get killed every day. Then why aren't you upset? That's the issue. People don't get it unless we feel like you understand us or even attempt to try to understand us. You're not going to get people who want to come and see you as a therapist. People want to feel comfortable. They want to be able to be seen. They want to be able to be heard. If you're not hearing me, then why am I going to come to you? And respected. Yes. I think a huge part fitting into that is they want to feel respected for the pain that they're feeling. Maybe I didn't know this person who was killed, but this person looks like me, looks like my dad. And that hurts and I'm terrified. Yes. And the respect that this is a thing and it's happening. And, you know, I I talk with other therapists. I talk with just friends. And it's interesting to witness some people's experience of this and saying, I don't understand why someone is hurt by this of, you know, you weren't related, you weren't even close. This wasn't your experience. And I think that that's such an interesting thing. And, you know, I hop up on soapboxes all the time about this stuff. Yeah. (laughs) And when I'm talking to another therapist who expresses that, you know, I do hop up on my soapbox a fair amount by accident, but just... I think respect is another thing that is perceived as missing, though many therapists are pushing themselves to learn and adjust and figure out how to create space and create that openness to be with people in distress. I, I would add two words to that. Respect, honor, honor the point of view. It is as valid as any other point of view. Honor that and do all of that with kindness. A gentleness that says, I really am curious about what's going on. I may not understand it. I may not experience it the way you have. And I can be present to it. And I will be here as you go through whatever you're going through. That level of kindness and honoring of another person's experience is really, really important. I agree. That's all very good wisdom, in my opinion. Blaze, when you said, why are white people not upset? at other white people getting killed. And the answer to that is because white people are classed and they assume that anyone that was shot was a lower class and therefore not interesting. Yeah. Oof. 
It, well, that's a yeah. It's a major part yeah of, of what happens among yeah, yeah. white that, folk, that, and that's yeah. the thing. It's like when you said it, it's, it's like, it like it really clicked, and that's and that's one of the things. It's like yo, that's just the truth. So. Before we move on, I do want to address a huge barrier, and we're going to have to go over it more briefly than it deserves, of the um, cost of therapy Yes, and the access to it. And that sounds less focused on cultural identities, but the reality is in at least America and many other places, socioeconomic status is almost inseparable from cultural identities. And that access, and I think on our opening episode of this arc, we talked about how North Carolina dropped a lot of community mental health services. And who's most affected by that are the people who can't afford other types of therapy. And statistically, that's going to be your people of color. And then also tying into that, just the location of where you live, if you live in a rural or isolated or underserved area and you can't catch public transportation to the main city area or there isn't a therapist local or the therapist who is local is not someone you feel comfortable with, yeah. huge barrier yeah. as well yeah. as... But then, yeah, but literally. Then exactly. yeah. So, well, you got telehealth doing this. Okay. Yeah. I was like, all right. So you expect somebody who can't afford insurance, who can't afford a normal therapy session if it comes down to it. You be, but you expect them to have internet, a laptop, a phone, and all these different types of things as well. And it's like, yes, the, op- the opportunities is there, but sure. the reality is a lot of people don't have these things. You know, if they got a phone, okay. Are they going to have right. like an iPhone that you can actually pull up a picture or a video when you actually do this stuff? It's so many different things that goes into this than what people think. You know, is nothing exists outside of that bubble of theirs. But then they think that so many people think that, oh, I'm very open-minded yeah. about this, not thinking about everything that could be a possible barrier for people of color who are trying to get the services that they need. One of the most interesting assignments I had while I was in my master's program, and I think I've talked about it before, I don't know if it aired or not, was we had to go and apply for food stamps, but we weren't allowed to use anything personal of ours. So like we couldn't use our cars. We couldn't use our laptops or our phones. We had to go find public resources. And it really highlights if you don't have these things, just how hard it is to find support and assistance, much less reliable, safe space to do therapy. Okay. You don't have access to a laptop, go to a library I'm not going to sit and do therapy in a public library. Sorry. Nah, not here for it. And then the last big one that I want to address is language barriers. You know, we're, we're Mm. talking about, you know, trying to seek therapy. And if English isn't your first language or even, you know, if English is your first language, but you don't speak in quote, quote, the master's educated terminology, which a lot of therapists use, They use these big words and don't break it down. You know, oh, you have major depressive disorder. What does that mean? You know, or schizotypal. Most people know depression, but schizotypal, they don't know. Right. You know, all of these, (laughs) Ben's raising his eyebrows, all of these words that a lot of therapists and, you know, I 
I do this as well. And I've challenged myself to start breaking it down. And a lot of my clients appreciate it that I do. Don't think about because that's just the standard lexicon we've learned. And even me with my lexicon, I had to throw it in there, you know, but that's just the language we've learned and bringing it back down to the more attainable and reachable language. And that's not even including, you know, speaking Spanish or Portuguese or sign language even. Or Thai or some of the languages that are really underrepresented. Because you can, well, German, but you can find public documents in a lot of different languages, but not all of the languages that exist in the world. And it would be impossible to do that. Mm -hmm. But that is a major barrier. Sorry, I was just trying to imagine doing therapy in German briefly. But it's the it's the origin yeah. of psychotherapy, yeah. right? Yeah. Freud, Germany. Yeah. Anyway, so those were some more of the barriers that I wanted to address that are more physical in nature and outside of just the inherent stigma around mental health mm-hmm. within cultures. There are also other built-in challenges that people experience in trying to go and get the support that they need. What about solutions? What about the, the positive side? Can we, can we fix some of these barriers? Can we help people find the support they need? Yes. Well, representation. (laughs) So more dope black therapists, please. But not just dope black therapists, Um, dope, you know, Brazilian (laughs) therapists, dope, you know, you know, that's the thing is it mean, it has to be so many people. Anyway, representation is, is going to be important. It's going to be huge, you know? And that's, and that's the thing is like, if you, if people see people like them in agencies, they're going to be more likely to come. And they're going to be more likely to join the, yeah. the yeah. Uh, workforce. The yeah. profession. Thank you. Profession. That's what I'm looking mm-hmm. for because it's being shown yes. and modeled that they can. If we really want to take down barriers, we have to reestablish the mental health centers. The community mental health centers were a key element of treating a lot of this and dealing with it. And, and I actually think that this is where we need to put money anyway, because we, we throw people in jail for drug charges, but that's not where they need to be. They need to be in treatment. They need a different way of being in the world. And I kind of like some of the directions that are going on now of bringing more mental health uh, professionals into the first responders. Unit. Although first responders get a lot of trauma True. all by themselves, True. just every fire you go to. Yeah. So mental health therapists, I, they're going to have to get some strength <laughs> to get there. But if we did more of that, if we had first responders who could deal with emotional issues, who could de-escalate situations, I, I wonder what the world would be like. Not, not that mental health folks are, are superheroes, although I kind of think we are, but I'm biased. <laughs> But I do think the capacity to recognize emotions in others and connect to that and bring them down, understand the individual, could help so many of the situations that go sideways. Mm -hmm. Totally agree. Definitely. And incorporating into the community the voices of people of color in mental health and bring forth that sense of identity. And highlight that they exist, for lack of better terminology on that. Another thing that I want to mention is creating culturally specific mental health tools. Our standardized mental illness testing is done based on testing by white people. And it does not take into account cultural diversity. And if you think about how do you get diagnoses, standardized testing. (laughs) 
Can you give me can you give me an example of a um, test? So like the MMBI, what is that? Minnesota Multiphasic yeah. Personality Inventory. There you go. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I know yeah. initials. I don't know full. But now you but you can go uh, take it a step further though, Kim. Just look at the DSM itself. You know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We need more voices incorporated into the world and the science and the study of mental illness. And it all comes down to that representation, people being present and welcomed into the community. Well, so we've been talking about marginalized people. I I have to point out that mental health is a marginalized healthcare system. Mm. That's true. Right. Mm. So often physical health folks, physicians, that, that kind of stuff, discount yep. mental yep. health until they need it, <laughs> but but they do discount it. And certainly insurance companies yeah. don't pay mental health the way they pay physical health. And they don't cover yeah. all of the different kinds of treatment that are needed. And they're very, very yeah. likely to say, nope, that's not it. Yeah. Or nope, you didn't get a pre-authorization or nope. My favorite, yeah. you can have five sessions. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to fix you in five all. sessions, y'all. <laughs> I won't. Mm-hmm. But well, see, no, no that, problem. That whole idea, though, is that you're only going to work on the diagnosis that's right there. So it's about one little bit, not an entire life, yeah. as if they could be taken apart. It's a, just a misunderstanding by the system about what mental health is or how it works. Is it truly a misunderstanding? It's a purposeful misunderstanding. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's a desire not yeah. to understand. Hey. There right. we go. Okay. Because there's enough research that shows the interaction between mental health and physical health. And the fact that if you have solid, strong, long-lasting relationships, you're healthier and stay out of the hospital. That if you have good emotional resiliency, you actually recover quicker and have a better immune system and lots of other good things that happen in the body. Mm-hmm. But it requires having skills. And these are not skills that are taught anywhere except really with mental health folks, I hope that they end up getting taught by lots and lots of families. I've certainly taught a lot of couples how to do this. So I hope they teach their kids. Well, and a Mm -hmm. thing that we'll have to cut is also the fact that if we start treating mental illness and then people are less physically ill, well, they're, you know, who's going to pay the doctors? What are the doctors going to do? And then if we look at the capitalist side of I know, healthcare, right. that's, that's yeah. a whole nother story. Follow that money. <laughs> we started to get into oh, insurance on one of these, and I went down the rabbit yeah. hole of frustration I have with it. Well, and that's why I was asking: like, is this actually a misunderstanding, or is this very well understood yeah. and a calculated well, thing? I don't. I don't know that it's calculated. It's an easy one to cut off. Folks yeah. who have mental illness don't really advocate for themselves. You know, the more serious the mental illness, the less likely they are to interact with society as a whole. They're they're very instantly marginalized. Leave them to be homeless. Leave them out in the woods. I don't want to see them. I don't want to hear them. I don't want to know about them. Well, and it circles right up, right back around to the point of this whole arc, the stigma. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then you're like, yep. lock, lock just don't want. They're not our problem. Don't want to deal with any of That's it. Right. Yep. Sorry. Oh man, we got depressing again. <laughs> I was trying to turn it around. Here's the hope. Here's the hope. So children today will lead us out of a lot of this because the kids are learning that people are people, right? That emotions are part of who we are and are healthy. 
that expressing yourself and being vulnerable isn't weak. Our children are learning this. It's the old folks like me. My, my generation needs to die off. <laughs> this is the hope. This is the hope yes. he's giving us. Right. My generation needs to die off. Because when it's, I believe the children are our future. There you go. Teach them well, let them lead the way. There you go. And that's the yeah. absolute truth. So, yeah. If you look at who's doing the filibustering right now, they're all old people. <laughs> old white people. Old white men, actually. Yep. There we go. Yep. All, I, was like, I'll, I'll just, all, I will throw all, it out there. Old white all men. White, old white rich men. Oh, fair. Socioeconomics, right. I think, plays a bigger part in this than people are willing to talk about. Oh, I am happy to talk about it. I just recognize that we will be here for another three hours if I start to get into it. Yeah, we got to. So we got to wrap it up. So I've been staying quiet. (laughs) You have a long summary, Ben. How are you going to get that all out? I don't know. I don't know. It was was a good conversation. Okay. We covered a lot of ground today, y'all. But that should give you a picture of some of the intangible and extremely tangible barriers for marginalized groups who are seeking mental health care. We also talked about some ways to change those barriers and hopefully start removing some of them, but it's a long road ahead. And listeners, if you're up for a challenge, go try and book a therapy session. Find out how much it costs. Think about whether it's something you could even afford weekly if you really needed it. Call your insurance company and find out whether you even have mental health coverage on your plan and what your in and out of network benefits are. You know, we talked about insurance a couple episodes ago, and it's a really crazy process. So go see for yourself what that is like. And uh, Blaze, thank you again for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. And until next time, enjoy the drive. Thank you for listening to The Relationship Road Trip. We hope you enjoyed the episode and we want to know what you think. So write to us at questions at afpsych.com. You can also support the show by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or subscribing with your favorite podcast app. You can find more episodes of the show at relationshiproadtrip.com or wherever you download podcasts. The Relationship Road Trip comes out every Wednesday at 7 a.m. So don't forget to tune in next week. The Relationship Road Trip is brought to you by Azevedo Family Psychology, where they are dedicated to helping you create a life worth celebrating. You can learn more about their services at azevedofamilypsychology.com. This podcast is produced by Bear Cave Audio. Bear Cave Audio provides a range of audio services, from original composition to podcast recording and editing. To learn more, go to bearcaveaudio.com or email Ben at bearcaveaudio.com. Until we meet again, may the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back and may the sun shine warm upon your face. Mm-hmm.